You're listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and on behalf of the members of our church, let me just say what a blessing it is to have you listen to the message we're sharing and to become a part of what God is up to over here in our little corner of creation. To learn more about Union, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org. Friends, we live in trying times. There's no doubt about it. There's global conflicts and catastrophes, political and economic uncertainty, cultural changes, generational shifts, and oh yeah, all of the usual trials and triumphs of just being human. Even if you look around and think to yourself, I don't know, pastor, life seems pretty good to me. Don't worry, we all have our trying times. In the church, we set aside 40 days leading up to Holy Week and the celebration of Easter as a time of trial, a time of testing what God can do and what we can do with God. The prophet Malachi wrote, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Friends, I pray that you may experience that overflowing flowing blessing, even in trying times. Now here's this week's message. The first scripture reading is Psalm 33, verses 1 to 5. This reading is from the New International Version. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him, Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. <laughs> for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of this word. A second scripture reading this morning comes to us from John's Gospel in the 17th chapter, uh, verses 1 through 9 and then 14 through 21. Um, this is part of an extended prayer that Jesus prays over his disciples. Let's continue to listen for the word of God for us here today. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I've made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. But I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from evil. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. And so sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they may also be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We join me now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray together. Gracious God, come now and send your spirit in this place. Diminish me that you may be increased, that your spirit and your truth may be found in us here, who may truly be made new, made one in you. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. In a chapter entitled The Incorrigible Cantor, biographer John Eliot Gardiner delves into the tumultuous world of the 1730s Lutheran Church and the politics of Leipzig, Germany, in the Saxon Kingdom. That was where J.S. Bach served as director of music for the city's uh, cathedrals. It was also a city job. He served under the authority of the city officials there. And um, in his late 40s, Bach was pretty well known. He was a pretty big deal. He was an established composer and director. And he'd only recently begun publishing his music. For the most part, those publications were created for royal patrons. So the main thing he did was compose liturgical works for the Lutheran Church. And, well, let's just say he had some run-ins with the authorities because perhaps it doesn't sound that way to us now, but his music in those days was quite cutting edge. Sing a new song. The other thing that happened, though, is that after he had settled into his role of, of creating music, he, he followed after the pattern of many creative geniuses. He began to neglect his actual day job of teaching at the university, of holding choir rehearsals, of finding musicians for Sunday service. There were rumblings... There were rumblings about his lack of discipline, accusations of insubordination and deceit and vindictiveness, and those accusations went both ways. As Gardner notes, no more than many distinguished features, figures who work in the arts and sciences both then and now, Bach was prone to exceptional sagacity in his field of expertise and to exceptional pettiness in his daily and social professional relations. With his tendency to be irascible and prickly whenever he felt his own authority as musician and chosen servant of the Lord was being challenged, it is remarkable that Bach managed to work the system at all for as long as he did in pursuit of his artistic goals. 
Bach was indeed a creative genius. But his artistic goal was grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly in the interpretation of it that he had gleaned from the teachings of Martin Luther. In 1742, uh, it was reported that he spent a vast sum of money to purchase a complete set of Luther's written works, of which he already owned two other editions. He collected these works. Um, It was said that his theological library could rival that of the clergy he actually worked for. But perhaps the most significant teaching of Luther's that informed Bach's music is the central teaching that human beings are simultaneously saint and sinner. Simul justus et peccator in the Latin. One of Luther's most favorite hymns that he composed, and indeed the one that was sung at Bach's own father's funeral, is called Mitten wir im Leben sind dem Tod umfangen, which means in the midst of life we are surrounded or embraced by death which we just heard a moment ago, follows a similar theme. Come, sweet death, blessed repose. Bach always had in sight this balance that Luther points out as well at the heart of the gospel between our humanity, the limitedness of our vision, of our power, of our time here on this earth that is inescapable, yet also the grace of God that even in the midst of death, We are surrounded and embraced by light and life, that eternal life Jesus talked about, to know God. Gardner opines that acknowledging Bach's humanity, his prickliness, his irascibility, actually actually allows us to see that humanity filtering into his music, which is far more compelling when we understand that it was composed by someone who, like all human beings, experienced grief and anger and doubt at first hand. This, Gardner says, is one of the recurrent features that confers the supreme authority upon his music. The genius of Bach's sacred music was not just that he put some catchy avant-garde tunes to Lutheran doctrine as a kind of trick to get people to like the church more. He went beyond that. His musical goal was to try and make real the experience of faith in Christ, to chart the ups and downs of belief and doubt in essentially human terms, in dramatic ways, rendering these tensions and quotidian struggles vivid. Bach lived and worked not quite at the beginning of the modern age, but certainly in a time of transition into it. A trying time when the old structures of religion in Europe were being eroded by the Enlightenment, by science and reason. In some ways, Bach was like a medieval sculpture, sculptor, those who worked under the patronage of royals and the church. Bach used his creativity not for his own fame or glory, but to glorify God and to glorify those who were seen as God's appointed servants upon earth. German sociologist Nicholas Luhmann explains that during this period, the development of art was motivated less by the private interests of upper classes than by the presentation of public communal affairs of a political or religious nature. 
This is why, for instance, the famed statue of David by Michelangelo was not kept in the foyer of the Florentine Salon of the Medicis. It was placed right in the center of Florence, where everyone could see and wonder at the perfected vision of God's creation of the male human form that radiates out of that white marble. I think if you have read the news at all this week about Michelangelo's David, you know that we do not live in that time, at least perhaps not as comfortably. Theologian Andrew Root summarizes that during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, art was never about reflecting the creativity of the artist. It was always about unveiling a glimpse of God's beauty. And this is why one of the criticisms that Bach received was because of his stylistic impropriety, that his approach to invention in a culture that was not equipped to deal with its originality graded against the forces of convention at that time. Because Bach was not merely interested in making beautiful music, but faithful music that was true to what it means to be faithful as a person, true to the beauty and danger, the joy and the doubt of living at once in sin and grace, his works graded against both the critics of the old school who thought he was too original, too inventive, but also those critics of the rising rationalists who sought to create in music a kind of mathematical perfection. To the listeners of his time, Bach's music was more like jazz. It was unusual. It was improvisational. Yet it was this way for the sake of being expressive of the human condition and the beauty of God. As with any time of cultural transition, Bach's time was a trying time for both the composer and the cultural authorities. He was on the threshold of a new age of creativity, the age we now live in, where art is understood to be an avenue of expressing the vision of the artist for harnessing the gifts of gifted human minds and making a name for them. This kind of creativity is always about innovating. It's always about being avant-garde, which literally means being in the front line on the march into the future. This is the creativity that we understand today. This is why we celebrate the artist more than celebrate the music. It's a delicate balance, though. Einstein famously quipped that this is what I have to say about Bach's life's work. Listen, play, love, revere, and keep your trap shut. <laughs> and perhaps that is good advice because the more we focus on the creative genius, the more we delve into the musicology of the counterpoints and harmonies of Bach's compositions, the more we squeeze the mystery and the wonder out of that music. One of the other reasons Bach came into tension with the city officials in Leipzig is because he placed a lot of value on the quality of the performance of his works. He would fire musicians who he didn't think were up to snuff, that were beloved uh, by the authorities. This was because his music was about creating an experience. It was more about that than about form or composition. The experience of faith as Luther understood it, as we understand it now, is sometimes a, an experience of a crisis about being in the midst of life and finding death 
or maybe being in the midst of death and finding life. All you have to do is look at those translations that we have in the bulletin. You can see questions, doubts, hopes, bitter joy and the half-constricted heart, sweet fruit from wormwood. And those words are one thing, but they come alive with the music. They come alive in the hearing. And that is like the word of God, which is never simply written. It must be read. It must be proclaimed. It must be heard. Today, the church faces another time of transition, perhaps even more radical than that of the 17th century in Europe. It's a time when old forms of religion seem to be passing away into obscurity, and many church leaders believe that the way the church must go is to innovate or die. We have to be creative. We have to find the next big thing that will draw people in. We have to bring people back, give them an experience that is compelling enough that they will open their calendars and their wallets and their hearts to being a part of a church again. This innovation is what our culture prizes, and innovation is what creativity looks like these days. We have traveled a long way from understanding creativity as a gift from God a gift that is given and not sold, received and not earned, delighted in by all and not reserved just for the privileged who can afford tickets to the opera or the gallery. Andrew Root says of our time that the culture of innovation is backwashing into the church and hollowing it out. Of course, the church has always been shaped by the times. The church lives in the world. It is the living body of Christ, at once justified and righteous, and still a work in progress. But Jesus' prayer, the lesson of the gospel here today for these trying times for the church, the lesson is that our work and our creativity and our innovation, it ultimately will come to nothing if it does not come to unity with God. This was the insight of the German mystics Eckhart and Toller, who in turn influenced Luther, who in turn influenced Bach, that if we want to know God, we have to recognize that we cannot know God in ourselves. That if we look to ourselves, if we look to the world around us, we can get some of the way to God, but we'll never get all the way there. The only way to know God and to flourish is to receive God from the outside. This is sometimes called a negative theology, talking about what God isn't. And what God isn't is us. Yet, this negative theology also informs what's called the via negativa, the negative way, which is about giving up this pursuit of innovation. You see, the church does not need us to save it. The church already has a savior. The job is taken. He prays for us that we may become one in him. This is the motto of the United Church of Christ, that they may be one. The history of the United Church of Christ is about the joining of different churches. One of the historical denominations is the German Reformed Church, a bunch of German-speaking churches here in America that joined this larger denomination because the belief was that the more we are a force for unity in a divided world, 
the closer we come to adhering to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it won't be by our own work, our own, our own trying, but the will of God at work in us that this unity is achieved. And so in this season of Lent, as we wait with anticipation for the coming of Easter, as we prepare for that moment when Christ bursts from the tomb and declares that God is alive once and for all, let us take this moment to wait and let the prayer of Christ be the prayer over our lives, that we may be one, that we may be creative, that we may make something new. This is the challenge of faith, to trust in God enough to let God be the one who leads, who enriches, and who creates. And if we can do that, then maybe we too can become incorrigible cantors in the choir of heaven here on earth, lending our voices to the unending hymn of God's glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message encouraged you, maybe challenged you, but connected with you somehow. If you'd like to connect with us, you can reach out on Facebook or Instagram at Church by the Park. The theme music you hear is Just Do It by RKVC. Until next time, may the grace and peace of Christ be with you.